You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host. I'm joined around the table by guys from Go Wild and Gumbroker.com. Uh, today, we are talking about real pop culture firearms um, and how they have driven the interest in guns. Um, and we've got some, some interesting factoids about Dirty Harry's gun that he used, and it there's something about it that might not be quite what you thought it was. The so, lie. The lies. <laughs> yes. So if you're feeling lucky, well, are you, punk? Gentlemen, are we feeling lucky? Always. Always? Always lucky? Good. Good. Eternal optimist over here. Are you? Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. My wife says I'm a pessimist. Mm. I'm like, no, I'm just a realist. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you and I have a lot in common. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, one of the guns that we want to talk about today, before we get to Dirty Harry, because, I mean, Dirty Harry's badass, but there, we want to talk about another badass with movie stuff. Uh, and so we show this gun here. And, and if I show you this gun here, gentlemen, who, who do we think of with this gun? I mean, I know from my childhood of playing Goldeneye. Yeah. But it's a, there's a fun twist to that, too. Because some people may not realize that's the same gun, but that that's my answer. Is I would have to say Goldeneye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Even more so than the movies. Yeah, the yeah. video game. Yeah, that was N sixty four. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about James Bond. Yes, exactly. And so the firearm is, of course, the iconic Walther PPK, uh, which is you know everyone knows that as James Bond's gun, um, but it's got an interesting history. You know, it, it predates James Bond. By a lot. 30 um, years? You, right, exactly. So it, it had a long and storied history before James Bond, you know, ever came to be. Um, so so it's, it's an interesting gun. And I, I think that it's one of those guns that, unlike others from World War II, um, it, it manages to escape its checkered World War II history, uh, in a sense, if you will. You know, there are some other guns used by that one country over there that will forever be pigeonholed as, you know, oh, that was the gun used by those guys, right? Well, they used these too, um, but but this gun lives on as James Bond's gun. Uh, and I think it's really neat, the the pop culture popularity and phenomenon that, that this gun was able to overcome that um, and, and be a, a positive icon mm-hmm. instead of a negative one. So... Bond's British, and I was just thinking, well, what else could they have used? And I'm trying to think of a British manufacturer of handguns that's, I guess, still around today. Or well, who would be the biggest? I mean, like at that point, I you know, Bond's going to be like carrying an Enfield revolver or a Webley <laughs> or a Webley, big old yeah. honking Webley. Yeah, yeah. For, for small semi-automatics, Great Britain really didn't have much an option. So, yeah. I mean, the, does anyone know what gun this replaced in James Bond's holster? I do because we were talking about it earlier. <laughs> it was a Beretta. Yes. Uh, some Something cat. You really missed the chance to be smart. That's why we give you notes. <laughs> That's why I'm dumb, because I missed yeah. the chance to be <laughs> smart. Dan dumb. Dan dumb. Dan strong. Um, do you remember what caliber that Beretta was? 25. Yes. 
And when uh, when Q, the quartermaster, came in to confiscate Bond's Beretta, uh, Gay handed him his PPK, chambered in 32 ACP, which he said hit like a brick through a plate glass window, which I think today would make most of us laugh really really hard i don't listen i don't want to get shot by a 32 but uh, yeah break no, through a plate grass window uh yeah. yeah i'm i'm of the opinion that all rounds regardless of caliber if they're incoming they have the right away right you know <laughs> i don't want to get hit by anything even a 22 short uh but yeah i i would not describe the 32 auto uh as as anything close to a brick it would be as laughable as that one politician who said an ar was as heavy as three loaded moving boxes you know, like what the hell kind of ar are you holding what <laughs> unit of measurement is that <laughs> right yeah exactly like that's a little backwards you know like i know we measure things in freedom units yeah. here but that's that's a little weird you know yeah. great writer but ian fleming might not have been the ballistics expert that uh, say uh, a jack car would be yeah. <laughs> and, and i read that he took feedback that someone wrote to him about james bond's gun and says that's too weak of a gun and he goes okay well what should he do and some fan of the book was like oh maybe this beretta or i mean this uh walther and he's like all right i'll write it in so it's kind of cool that he took the fan feedback on it it is neat i didn't know that um so that's still made today yep mm-hmm. walther still makes but it's not in that caliber you can get them in a few different calibers um obviously 380 is the most popular um, but I think you can get them in 32, right? 32 or used to be able to anyway. And 22 long. And 22 long. So, yeah, you can still get a brand new Walther PPK in 380. You know, so if you want the, you know, if you want a brand new version of James Bond's gun, you can you can get it. Now, th- this particular example uh, dates to the first half of 1939. So this is even a, a pre-World War II example with the, the modeled Bakelite grips, which is, you know, like an early plastic, if you will. Um, but yeah, it, it's an iconic gun that just keeps chugging along, you know, uh, and, and it's got that pop culture staying power, you know, are, are there guns that, that are made today that are smaller and more powerful, have a higher magazine capacity? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but if you ask someone to, you know, well, tell me, you know, what, what's a popular pocket sized 380? Doesn't matter what the new hotness is that just came out or whatever it may be, you know, people know the PPK. Yeah. It's just, it's had that iconic staying power, and most of it's thanks to James Bond. Frankly, the gun would have gone out of production decades ago if it wasn't for James Bond. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, in 32, it's not bad to shoot. 380, it gets a little awkward. It's nasty for slide bite, just the, the small beaver tail it's got. Mm-hmm. You can almost tell, you can always tell you've been shooting a PPK during the day because you're going to have two grooves cut in your hand right there. It's just, you know, a given. Um, the ergonomics have always been, you know, there's better options, but again, it's, you can't pick it up without doing that whole Sean Connery pose thing. You just, you have to. What are you talking about? That's the one. <laughs> you start introducing yourself as Metish, Logan Metish. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the 64 controllers were awkward, but I never got the slide bite, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So this well, is a pre 64. Like <laughs> yeah. Like it was, yeah. Well, you know, and I guess it's a good thing. That at least, you know, when Ian Fleming was writing the Bond books and stuff, that that DNA technology wasn't there. Because if James Bond had gotten bit, you know, by, uh, by, by the slide, he might be dropping some DNA around. Who knows what they might have been able to do or, or how they might have been able to control him with something if they had some of his DNA and knew how to test it, right? But it is super interesting that this gun, you know, we were talking a little bit about this uh, just before we hit record here. Of of it did have a notoriety within the SS, yes, and and the Bond movies really 
rebranded the gun. I mean, to your point, kept it alive probably uh, for its popularity. But can you talk a little bit about that and, and some of the association with the gun and, and its World War II history? Sure. Yeah. So the gun's design itself predates World War II. It actually dates to the early 1930s. Um, and so it, it has, you know, an, an almost decade long history even before it becomes associated with the Nazi war machine. Right. Um, and, and it's, it is interesting during world war II, uh, there were a number of different contracts for different German officers and for different, uh, branches of the German military that had, they had different requirements for the same gun. Right. And one of the requirements for the SS in, in the, I think they did two or three different contract runs, but one of the requirements was that the magazines had to bear the serial number of the gun. Uh, and so you would have two matching magazines. And uh, I think they did them two different ways. On one, they, they put the serial number on the spine, and one, I think they did it on the floor plate. Um, and I, I picked this particular gun up, you know, as surplus. Uh, I bought it just having seen pictures on the Internet because like, oh, it comes with, you know, a period holster and two period mags. And when I got it, I noticed that one of the mags had a serial number on the gun. I'm like, well, that's unusual. And so I started doing some digging and discovered that the magazine uh, it was actually uh, from one of the SS contracts, um, which is fascinating to me. Uh, a little creepy, as Brad, yeah. you said before yeah. we before we started. You know, it's it is. It's a to, to think about the history of what that gun likely saw. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, if you've done any research or, or studied mm -hmm. the SS, just the SS specifically yes. of, of the chaos that they could, uh, you know, kind of partake in. Yeah. It's wild to think about what that magazine has been through. Mm -hmm. But it didn't match the serial number of the gun. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The, the magazine doesn't match the gun. So I, I've, uh, believe me, I keep my eye out. I know <laughs> I have the serial number from the mag written down and I, I keep an eye out trying to find because it would be so neat to be able to, I mean, macabre is all hell. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it would be really interesting uh, from a historical standpoint and from a collector yeah, standpoint I mean, to pair the gun with its magazine after 80 some years, yeah. you know, would be really interesting. But, but again, you know, thank God for Ian Fleming and James mm -hmm. Bond that we can, we can have a more lighthearted discussion about the PPK, you know, because of James Bond and we're not having to talk about Germans. So constantly. anybody from, you know, that, that like us grew up playing, playing, I'm really more of a golden, I'm familiar with this gun more from the golden eye games. Um, but if you don't know which gun we're talking about, the golden gun from GoldenEye is what they call a PP7. And, you know, I'm assuming they had to rebrand it because they didn't have the licensing, just like, uh, you know, same, same reason Michael Jordan wasn't an NBA jam, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting uh, when I, when I kind of saw that we were going to talk about this. I was like, oh, I think that, and I looked it up and it was a different name. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that has to be it. Because, I mean, you can see that gun and you know. That is right. the iconic golden gun of GoldenEye, right? The yep. one one the one kill shot If it, for anybody that uh, didn't play the game or if you have forgotten. I feel like if you played that game, you were probably like me and it was like <laughs> religious. I would go to my friend's house and we would wake up at like 6 a.m. after, <laughs> after a, a, a spin of the night. And it's like you just start cranking on it until mom makes breakfast. Right. right. Uh, so, so I think anybody would recognize that if you played that as a kid. Absolutely. Um, even if you didn't watch the movies. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and if you know the gun only from the video games, you know, I, I would encourage you to go down to your local gun store or gun range or whatever and actually put your hands on one because 
says, contrary to popular belief, in real life, the lines are actually really smooth. They're not nearly as pixelated mm. as they are in the game. Well, that's yeah. interesting, especially when you play a 64 now on like an HD. Right. <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> it's like stretched out. <laughs> you know, my childhood remembers this differently. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah probably an interesting point there, Logan. This is probably the oldest design you can find in most rental gun counters because it's, it's such a popular gun for... You know, people who come into the gun through either the movies or the video game. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Very interesting. So so that's cool that, that all of us sitting around the table, you know, even though it's James Bond related, we've all got that connection more from the video games. And especially for myself, I'm not a video gamer. I, I, I've never been a fan of video games. I don't own a console. I never have. But I remember playing Goldeneye on N64 yeah. at friends' houses because, like, that was just... It's what you did, you know. I was like, well, I want to hang out with my friends. I guess I'm playing some Goldeneye, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but, but, but yeah. So it's very neat that the that the PPK has that that pop culture connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it is far from the only firearm uh, that has been kept alive thanks to movies and fictional characters. Uh, and and if there is one gun that is more iconic from the movies than the PPK, what would it be, gentlemen? Go ahead and make my day. You feel lucky? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Punk? Have we shot seven podcasts today? Or, I don't know. Or, or wait, only five podcasts or I six podcasts? I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> and, all, and all the excitement, I lost count myself. Yeah. <laughs> I gots to know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It's the Smith & Wesson Model 29, 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. Rolls right off the tongue. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Clint makes it sound so easy when he does it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there is there is probably no more iconic movie handgun than the Smith & Wesson Model 29. I mean, Dirty Harry Callahan is just... <sighs> what, what can you say, you know? I mean, Dirty Harry is awesome, but... But that gun in the movie, I mean, it's it has kept the popularity of that gun for more than half a century. I mean, that movie saved that gun at From the time. Extinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Smith had introduced it. What about eight or nine years before that? Maybe. Uh, well, if, if, if even that far. Oh, far far before that. The forty four. Because uh, the movie comes out in what in seventy or seventy one. Okay. Um, and and the design. You know, they were making that before it became the Model 29. I think in 1956 or 7 is when Smith changed to the model number designation and it became the 29. But they were making the 44 Magnum before that. So, uh, you know, the gun had already been in, in production for a handful of decades, you know, at least probably at least 30 years, I guess. I'm bad at math. That's why sure. I do this and not that. But um, but more than a year or two, you know, if I remember the story right, the Model 29 wasn't selling well. It was really, you know, they were languishing on shelves. They were very expensive because they were large guns. They yep. had to be very heavily built for the 44. And Smith was considering discontinuing it. Then mm-hmm. this movie came out, and all of a sudden they were in a multi-year back order for them. Yep. And and it continued for a long time that folks were having a hard time finding those guns, you know. And now the Model 29 is part of what Smith calls their classic line, mm-hmm. which includes, you know, the Model 19, the Model 10, of course, the Model 29. And, and you can buy a brand new model 29 um but but there's and you know and they're in all different barrel lengths you can get them you know shorties and two and three uh two inch three inch you know, four inch 
Um, you know, six and a half is what they used for some of the filming uh, in the movie. They also used one uh, when they wanted that really big effect, that long barrel, the eight and three eighths, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and that's the truly, really iconic yep. gun. But if you've ever had one of those in your hand, you're like, my God, there is no way in hell I'm carrying a revolver <laughs> yeah. with an eight and three eighths inch barrel and a shoulder holster I, all day long. I have appendix carry mine. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, your poor wife. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean, um, which one did they have at the NRA Museum? That's an eight and three eight. That's an right? eight and yeah. three eighths inch. Yep. Yeah. So um, yeah, so the yeah, when I in a previous life, I was the firearm specialist at the NRA National Firearms Museum, and I've got a display of Hollywood guns in there, and and one of the guns that they have in the collection um, is a Smith and Wesson Model Twenty Nine, eight and three eighths inch barrel that was actually used by. Clint Eastwood in the film, and that's because the gun is in the collection of John Milius. Is that one a, a prop gun that's been modified, or is it an actual? It's actual. It, it was a firing uh, working firearm. Yes, yep. and yep, it is a working firearm uh, that was used in the film. Um, and in fact, there's an interesting story about uh, you know real guns, uh, real guns versus the you know rubber duck guns mm -hmm. uh, that that are meant to be thrown around. Um, there was a story I had heard uh, that at one point. Um, Dirty Harry is supposed to drop the gun, I think, and um, he was supposed to have had one of the, the fake prop guns in his hand, but he had the real one, and he dropped it, and so it got all banged up, and you know, so um, that's why, you know, if they're filming movies, they've got multiples of the yeah, gun, right. um, but that was a problem uh, early on with them, was, was trying to find enough Model 29s. Yeah. How, does that, how does that impact the value, like, W w all all this uh, this this memorabilia comes to market. I mean, is there is there generally the one that was shown the most has the most value, or do they all kind of hold the same weight uh, if they're if they're real guns or prop guns? Like, what's that impact on the value? That's a good question. Um, obviously, you know, if you can prove that a gun is is you know had screen time and and was in the hands of you know the most famous actor for you know mm -hmm. whatever gun it may be, those are obviously going to command a premium. Um, you know, even the rubber duck guns, yeah, those are going to command money. But obviously less than than what the real firearm yeah. would be. Um, but there's collector value in in all Model 29s, um, and 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 a lot of it is driven by the age of the gun, and a lot of it is driven by the barrel length of the gun. So still to this day, um, you will pay a premium uh, for a Model 29 with an eight and three eighths inch barrel compared to one you know with the shorter barrel like with the six inch, which is was still used in the film um but is a shorter gun and i'm sure alan you've probably got data that that backs that up from what you guys see coming across the auction block yeah we do you know the eight and three eights obviously draws the premium blued they did them in stainless as well but yep. blued of course is the with the walnut stocks that's the one you got to have um that that the pistol on its own can go anywhere depending on condition from 2600 to 3500 if you start adding on things like the original box or paperwork that goes with it and it just continues to climb from there um Sadly, finding screen use stuff is harder and harder because most studios refuse to give provenance in those things anymore. That's for political reasons. They don't want to be associated with a, a gun that gets sold out. So most of the, the prop guns either live in prop houses forever or end up chopped into pieces. So, so older movie guns, that's kind of your, your limited supply anymore where you know, it's like you're never going to see a movie-used John Wick gun out there because the studio just isn't going to go for that. So mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, but that's definitely your premium. Eight and three inch, orange front insert barrel, blued finish, walnut stocks. Um, if you got boxes and papers, it's going to cost you the most. Yep. So are they still making the gun new? Yes, yep. absolutely. Yep. They're, it's called the Model 29 Classic, and I think the MSRP on a brand new one is like fourteen ninety nine. Yep. So what you're probably looking at about twelve hundred bucks street price yep. for you know for one. Um, but yeah, you can you can still go get a brand new Model 29 when in reality. You know, Smith would have discontinued that gun half a century ago. Um, but now you've got a 50-year-old movie that is keeping keeping it alive. You know, I mean, there are guys like us. Uh, at least I'm pretty sure none of us were around in 1971 when the film came out, you know. Um, and yet, I can just tell from talking to, you know, we're all enamored by that gun. You to know. tell you about how screwed up my childhood was when I heard that this quote. This isn't that podcast. This is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no when, couch. When I first heard that quote, I'm like, oh, that's from Taxi Driver. Because mm. in Taxi yeah. Driver, Robert De Niro oh. recreates the oh, scene. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was originally from Taxi <laughs> Driver. And I'm like, oh, they're quoting Taxi Driver. <laughs> so <laughs> I was introduced to Taxi Driver before. That's before funny. We, also an iconic movie. Yeah. You, you brought up a name a minute ago in John Milius. And you mm-hmm. know, we talked about Ian Fleming maybe not being the most ballistically savvy writer. John's on the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at some of the, the movies that we consider gun movies throughout history, you're probably seeing John's name, like the original Red Dawn, Jeremiah Johnson, you know, Magnum Force, Dirty Harry, um, even like Flight of the Intruder, which I'm sorry, if you get to the scene with Willem Dafoe telling Sandy to drop the napalm in his position and you're not crying, I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with you. But um, What'd you call it? Flight of the Intruder? Flight of the Intruder. You've never seen that one? No. Based on a Stephen Coon's book? Just write it down. No, never heard of it. <laughs> Willem Dafoe's intro. best movie, hands down. If you disagree, throw Better it in the comments. Better than Platoon? Yes. Interesting. Fired. Throw it in the yeah. comments if you disagree. Because <laughs> I would say Willem Dafoe's best movie has got to be Boondock Saints. Mm. That's up there. Uh, let us know in the comments who's right, who's wrong, why, and tell us why we're all wrong, yeah. because yeah. that's how comment sections work. Probably my favorite part of John Milius as a writer, though, is he did cross over with one of the other great gun directors and Michael Mann. He wrote an episode of Miami Vice that I just had to note because it's the show title is The Viking Bikers from Hell, which I don't remember that episode, but i got to go find it because be how do you pass that title? <laughs> Ooh, that would be. You know, it sounds like Norwegian heavy metal. You know, you, you would definitely make the front like a good <laughs> <Yes>. front man. <clears throat> All right, uh, that would be funny. We talked about the great lie in the movie, though. Mm-hmm. So you know, we do want to bring this up. We all know the iconic speech because, first of all, it's one of the best scenes in the first movie. They open Magnum Force with a voiceover doing it all of the forty-four Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. Yep. Probably blow, blow your head clean off. What we learn in Magnum Force, though, is it's actually a little bit of a lie. Because Harry's not shooting a 44 Magnum through that. There's a scene where he's in a, a police combat competition with some younger recruits, and the one asks him what he shoots through it, and he admits that he shoots a light 44 special load. Because in that big, heavy of a handgun, it controls the recoil better than the 357 using wad cutters. So my whole childhood has been a lie. Cause well, but you know, but we talked about this, and, and, and it's not so much a lie as it is a twist, because... The line is, you know, Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. And that's true. He is shooting a Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum in terms of the handgun. He didn't mm. say the most powerful cartridge in the world. So That's like uh, saying you're driving a Chevy Corvette, but you don't have any gas in the tank. <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh, it's, it's, come on. I know. But, but you know, it's interesting that you bring up the, the comparison or, you know, or, the, or the, the, the 44 Special versus the 44 Mag. So, again, in my previous life at the NRA Museum, one of the things we did as a fundraiser there 
um, and we did it with a, a number of different guns, but we did it with Dirty Harry's gun. We ran, I think it was 1,300 rounds through the gun, firing into cardboard boxes filled with shredded tires so that we could catch the bullets. And they kept all the fired bullets and the spent cartridge cases and then framed and mounted them and, you know, used them as auction fundraiser pieces. Um, but so I myself have personally run a few hundred rounds of 44 Special because God forbid if I had to sit there and shoot hundreds of rounds after round. I'm not saying I disagree with Harry. I I've shot both calibers. I'd rather, especially oh, the absolutely. volume, especially the volume Harry Callahan seems to shoot. Right. I would shoot a 44 special myself. Absolutely. Yeah. But so, so you I've, got to fire the, the. So I have fired the dirty Harry gun and bearing the lead here, man. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that should have been our, our lead into yeah, the episode. Nah. You won't believe my tie to that gun. Yeah. Well, we wow. can always refilm the beginning. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fix it in post. We'll so, fix it in post. We're too yeah. lazy to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to mention my two childhood guns, like the guns that I remember being cool and kind of tied into this. So the Spaz 12 from Jurassic Park mm -hmm. and the lever action shotgun from Terminator 2 mm. were my two. And that kind of ties in with the Dirty Harry gun and kind of the PPK in that you get the sense... And, you know, a lot of movies are like that, John Wick movies and stuff. You kind of get the sense that the more impractical the gun is, uh, the more memorable it'll be for the character. Right. And when you see that specific gun, that means that you will always associate it with that character, but also that the gun isn't that good of a gun. And, and I was just going to say, is there... Is there, do you think, something about the fact that this would not be a normal carry gun for a cop that builds into the character development? Or do you think it's just the armor of the movie thinks it's cool, so I'm going to put it in? I don't know. I mean, I think, especially with Dirty Harry, like, I think that's exactly the gun Dirty Harry needs to be carrying, right? Yeah. Like, for example, let's use the two characters we've been talking about. It would be weird as hell if Dirty Harry carried a PPK and if James Bond carried a Smith & Wesson Model 29 with an 8 and 3 8 inch barrel, right? Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's it's you've got to find stuff that fits the caliber. Or, or his, the point, his point makes me think of Rick Grimes, though, from Walking Dead with the Python. It's yeah. like, yeah. what a irrational gun to have in a zombie apocalypse yeah. when he mm -hmm. had it through the whole thing. So specific, yeah, I'm, specifically I'm, on Dirty Harry, I think it's two things. One, you've got a gun nerd in John Milius who's just looking for something crazy. But it, the reason the Dirty Harry movies were so popular is the crime in the 70s was crazy. And they wanted to emphasize that this character was doing everything to combat crime, do whatever he had to do. And if that meant having something that would shoot through four car blocks to get to the bad guy, so be it. Right. Yeah. Well... I uh, I think we're running a little bit short on time, but I, I think that there's we've covered a lot of ground in here. Um, but there is one last thing I want to do that I want to mention um, is that in a previous episode of the show, uh, Dan, you had mentioned from the, the latest John Wick about the takedown lever action oh, rifle, yeah, I forget about that. and that uh, and that we you know there was concern that it wasn't a real gun. Well, Mad Pig Customs that made that gun, uh, Steve from Mad Pig actually called me and said, "Hey, I watched the show." He's like, "And I wanted to let you know, give, it, is, is he going to give me one? He's like, Did well, he make the, one for me?" Well, he says it's actually a real gun they're all based off of real guns but in order to get the whole takedown mechanism to work 
um, that aspect of it, you know, is fantasy. In order to be able to do it like that, it's got yes. interrupted threads and everything. So is it built on a real gun that he test fired and works? Absolutely. But is it something that could really go into production and be safe? Not so much. And I knew it was a so. mad pigs. I know, you know, there's some takedown ARs where they have something that blocks the spring. So I'm like, maybe you could have like the magazine right. that's blocked by something. But yeah, that's sad. I thought I was getting the mad pigs. Yeah. So, so no, it, it, it exists, yeah. but not quite the way we thought it was. So, but, uh, but I wanted to throw that out there. I told Steve that we'd, we'd mention that. So, well, we're, like I said, we're running low on time, but if you guys have made it this far, appreciate you being here. If you made it this far, that means you're probably a subscriber to the podcast. If you're not, you need to be, um, when you finish here. So make sure you're subscribed, make sure you're logging your time and go wild. Make sure you're going and trying to find either a PPK or a 29 on Gunbroker. Um, and then also leave us a review of the show on your preferred platform. We would appreciate that. Um, so again, gentlemen, appreciate you sitting around the table with me. Appreciate you all for joining us and we will see you on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. Thank you.